allowing me to come. So if you're not woken up, say so we got a nice set of volume here so you guys can hear me clearly. Good things, right? That's exactly right. And hopefully you're hearing a lot more from the Lord than you are from me this morning, right? That's good news. Well, it is a privilege to be here. Thank you all so much for this opportunity. And I want to just also thank you for your love and support for this ministry for so many years. You all support me financially in prayer, in time and energy, giving to this ministry, giving to my students and my wonderful staff, Josh and Megan, who are among you all today. I could not do this ministry without your love and support, without your care, without the care of my family, my staff, my wonderful alumni and students through the years. And I'm telling you, ministry is beautiful, but it is not easy. It isn't. An RUF at Christopher Newport, my goodness, it's seen a lot of changes. Um, through the through 11 years, it's been in existence. And I want to thank you all for loving us for those, for those years and the years coming as well too. And the reason why I say that is because on Friday, October 1st, we're going to be having um, an 11-year celebration. And there's going to be more details and more invites coming out soon, but all of you will be invited to that. And we're going to reflect on... God's faithfulness for 11 years, pouring into this ministry, blessing students year in and year out. And we're going to hear stories of God's faithfulness. We'll sing some songs. We'll probably have some great stories from alumni, from former staff. And even I'm hoping to get a uh, video call from Dave Latham, who's a former campus minister. And just to look back and just say, thank you, Lord, and thank you to everybody uh, for this ministry and its impact for this next generation. Now, one thing I'm going to ask before I get going in this sermon as we're going to look at the uh, book of James together is I'm going to ask for prayer, um, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll dive into our passage. But I'm going to ask for prayer specifically for my student leaders and my staff because we're in the midst of planning for a great fall semester where we have incoming freshmen, transfer students, all of our returning students. We have three other staff members other than myself on my team. Pray for them. For Zach, Megan, and Josh, for myself, pray for our 21 student leaders who have a whole lot of work to do coming their way, engaging, reaching, and equipping our campus, Christopher Newport, for Christ and sharing the gospel. And that's a lot of people. And then all of our students who are going to be reaching out. It is not an easy task in this day and age age to do these things, but pray for us. Um, I'm going to ask for that specific prayer now and also pray that we would receive God's word to us. So pray with me individually and collectively as well. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. You have been faithful to me, to my family, to my staff, to my students, to my alumni. Lord, you've been faithful to this church, to a university, Lord, who we care for. We pray, Lord, that as we go into this fall, you would do a mighty work on this campus. You would change hearts. You would draw, Lord, people to yourself, that there would be conversions. Lord, there would be a depth of a love for you. There would be greater righteousness, conviction of your truth, theological doctrines. There would be greater unity and fellowship. Lord, I pray for us, for my, myself, my staff, my student leaders, my students, the faculty and staff, Christopher Newport. Lord, that we would truly be a light, Lord. A, Lord, a bright, attractive light that shares your gospel Lord, no matter, Lord, how others might perceive it, 
that you would give us courage and confidence and boldness, flow of thought to be able to articulate, Lord, the goodness of who you are. Help us to verbalize your truth, but also help us to be a people who live out and embody your truth. People of deep character. Lord, pour into us. And I do pray for our time right now that, Lord, through your word and James, you would pour into us, you would change us, Lord, that we would live this faith out in a tangible way, that we would embody it, Lord, impacting our communities. Lord, bless us, change us, grow us, convict us. Lord, love us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Bring beautiful change, redemption, and healing to our lives. Help us to live out this gospel in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces. Lord, in everywhere you take us. Lord, we need you. We rely upon you, Lord, to hear and apply your word this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Well, as we just had a confession of sin, we had an assurance of pardon. We had some beautiful hymns singing God's truth. You were reminded of two things. What are the two greatest commandments? What are they? Love God and love neighbor. That is exactly right. Let me remind you too as we get going in James chapter 2 that your God loves you. He loves your neighbor. He does. And out of his love for you and love for your neighbor, he's calling you to apply this love as he fills you with his love, his grace and his mercy, as he grants and gifts it to you by his free grace. He's calling you to go out and live out of that joy and abundance and overflow of that care and grace. And he's saying, you Christian, go out and live that and embody that to your neighbor. Love them with intentionality, with great thought and reflection. And that's why we have a sermon today called The Destructive Nature of Favoritism in James chapter 2 is because this is often an acceptable um, and a subtle sin that flies under the radar. But it destroys fellowship. It destroys our relationship with our neighbor. And it shows disrespect to God. Because he's also made other people in the image of God. And we are to value other people as worthy of our time, energy, and thought. And to love them with equity and justice. And we are being reminded of that in this passage. James asserts that our authentic faith is a faith that works. And it's not meant to be just verbal, but to be visible. And so that visible faith ought to permeate our lives and our conduct and in our character. And that's what we get as we look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. That you and I are to live lives void of external favoritism or partiality. Why? Because God has loved you with equity, without partiality. Because he loves your neighbor. And he's calling you to live in that exact same way, to exemplify a faith that works and that lives and that breathes. And as we approach this text, I'm going to just give you the structure because we're then going to walk through that structure. So we're going to see three things. In, in verses 1 through 7, you're going to see a command to show no favoritism. It's not going to be a suggestion. It's a command. Do not show favoritism. The verses 8 through 13, we're going to see that small sins have big consequences. You're going to see that. And you're going to feel the weight of that. I will too. And lastly, we're going to see that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's going to be good news. But we're going to encounter that in the text. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open those. Or if you want to follow along on the screen, we're going to read 
verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to say it aloud and you guys follow along. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, well, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into the courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? End of quote. We're being reminded here that as we love our neighbor, we are to love our neighbor no matter what our neighbor looks like, how they dress, the vibes or aura that they give off, the language or bravado, the body language that emanates the eye contact or lack thereof. You are to show no face value favoritism. That's kind of what the Greek says here. And that, if you do show face value favoritism when you encounter other people, that is evil to the Lord. And when we see verses 2 through 4, we're given a practical illustration of what does this look like. We're given that this happens in the context of the life of the church. And in James's particular context, this is a house church. They're going through persecution at this point in time because there is national favoritism, right, that unfortunately is leaving out and showing disrespect for all of those who would follow Jesus Christ in favor of those who were following the Jewish faith or the ideology of emperor worship. And so we're being told, do not treat others even though you're being treated in a really poor way. Even though your nation state is showing favoritism to everybody else but you, you are not to treat others that way. And so he, we're being called to something to live differently. And what do we get? We also get argumentation of why favoritism is a contradiction of God's character in these verses as well. So what's the first thing we see? We see it says, my brothers show no partiality. Meaning, brothers and sisters of faith, you who are Christians, who have been given grace, which is unmerited favor, but then also it's more than just you're given unmerited favor. You don't get what you deserve, which is God's wrath and judgment for any and all of your sins. It says, you who are Christians, show no partiality, favoritism, unnecessary distinctions towards others based on externals, especially in the context of this gathering. Show love. Greet other people with warmth. Even if you don't say it, don't think it. Enjoy and love those who walk through these doors, those who walk through your doors in other settings. Treat them with thoughtfulness and care, no matter their speech, their language, their tongue, their status. That is not okay for us to do, but we do this. And obviously this is happening in this particular church that James is talking about because he's addressing it very bluntly and boldly. He's not mincing his words. He is crystal clear. These subtle sins have no place in the life of the Christian. The personal life of the Christian 
ought to be free from this kind of external favoritism, making distinctions and not even a hint of discrimination ought to be in you. And we see this. This happens very easily with those who are wealthy and those who are poor. But we also know those distinctions come otherwise with ideological beliefs, those who are Republicans or Democrat, those who look a certain way or live a certain way or have affinities for some things and not others, that we treat and we categorize people in different ways, don't we? In subtle ways. Maybe we don't verbalize it, but maybe we're thinking it. And this is evil to the Lord, that we would treat people in a way that's lesser in any way, shape, or form. Let me be the first person to say this because my wife is in the audience, and say, I know that I'm guilty of this too. In the subtle sins of favoritism and partiality. In my family, with my children, with my staff, with my students, with my leaders, with other pastors, with people in my neighborhoods, are my motives always purely righteous? Or are sometimes my motives in dealings with people transactional? Oh yeah, they're oftentimes transactional because I'm a man who's born into sin. And as I say these things, I'm a man who has to eat these own words and I'm telling you that these subtle sins destroy and corrupt us from the inside out. It destroys fellowship among others. And this is as much for me as it is for you. I really say that with conviction. That we are to be a people who love others because other people are made in the image of God and we're to care for them even in the subtle, subtle ways that even we may not write overtly express, but even in our thought lives and our motivations or to have equity and justice towards people. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord says, As the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, he said, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is not concerned about the condition of one's clothes, but the condition of their heart. We need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that time and time again. And what's the context in which this is being said? Well, we have Samuel who's being called upon to anoint another king over Israel. King Saul's been very wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And now Samuel's looking at the sons of Jesse to anoint another king, another successor to Saul, the king of Israel. And who would be worthy of this title and this prestige to be put over others, right? God's chosen people. And Samuel with Jesse... Jesse, being the father of many sons, he brings out his sons and puts them before Samuel and says, these are my sons. Which one of them is going to be king? He brings out Eliab. And apparently Eliab is probably built like, right, the Rock Dwayne Johnson. He's a strong, strapping, handsome man, right, as he is. And Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, right? Clearly, his regal demeanor, his look, his stature, right? He looks the part. He looks powerful. Clearly, this is Israel's guy, right? No doubt. The Lord said, do not lock on his parents or his height or stature because I have rejected him. Then Jesse brought out all of his other impressive looking sons, right, outwardly, and he put on their best physical displays and attributes. And Samuel asks, well, don't you have any other sons? Like, is this it? And Jesse responds, yes, I do have another son. My youngest son, David, is out tending the sheep. Samuel says, he will be king. Now, what's Jesse, what's he guilty of? Showing favoritism and partiality. He didn't even bring his son. He didn't even bring David to the table to be brought up as a king. And who did the Lord choose? The small runt of the group. He chose him 
so that the Lord's name would be made great, right? And so he chooses oftentimes the small things, the weak things, to confound the strong and the wise. And we see that this, right, God is after our heart. He cares about the condition of your heart. Now, we see each other's condition physically here, right, even in this presence. But the Lord is looking infinitely deeper. He's looking at your heart motivations. What drives you? What do you value? What do you care about? Who do you care about? How do you treat other people? He cares about these things and the qualitative aspects of these things. And if you know the pattern of God in the Old Testament, you see that same pattern in the New Testament, that he chooses the lowly things to confound the strong and the proud, so that God's name would be made great. His glory would be known, not our name and our glory would be known. And so that is often why you see these things. That God takes the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, and to reveal his glory. And so, we see that we are to be a people who are not to be judgy Christians. Not at all. We have a beautiful law. We have beautiful, beautiful teachings of the Lord and the Old and New Testament that share how we are to conduct our lives. But hear me when I say this. Be wary about judging other people. You are guilty of many sins. I am too. Be guilty of your judgment of other people, even in subtle ways. That is what we're being reminded of. In James's sermonic letter, he's saying, a faith lived and applied means also personal righteousness and growth and holiness. And this is one of those sermons that talks about growth and holiness personally and the subtle things in of our lives. We see an illustration of this. He says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, right, your church, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, will you stand over there, sit down at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, before I break down what James is saying here, let me first explain what he's not saying as well, too. I think that will be helpful. James is not saying you're never to show deference especially to those who may be elderly or handicapped, you're supposed to show love and care to them, right? Anywhere, everywhere, orphans, widows, show love, show care. But he's saying don't make superficial distinctions that have a whole lot of self-centered motives behind them or to elevate yourself through pride, even in your thought life. James's audience was obviously doing this in some way, shape or form in this first century, but we're being told even now in the 21st century, do not do that. Even in subtle ways, little ways. Do not make distinctions about those who are chair-worthy people and those who are not. It's a weird way to think about it. But how about this? How about how you respond to people in church, in this congregation, or even beyond? What does it say about the speed in which you get back to certain people? Whose texts, whose emails you get back to and when? What does it say about those people who you deem more worthy where you're not busy, but those maybe you subtly deem less worthy? Maybe you're more busy, right? How about also your body language or tone or eye contact, your demeanor? How does it, sh- how does it shift and shape based on how you value another person, even in subtle ways? Think about those little things and the value judgments an externalization of those things, even within your own self, you have got to know that we exude 
value judgments on other people on a regular basis in subtle, sinister ways. Be aware of that. This is a sermon saying we ought to be a people who grow in self-awareness because the Lord who's breathing Holy Spirit through James is saying these even small things matter significantly. They really do. That we are to value other people. We're to be curious. We're to want to learn from other people who are different and uniquely different, who are different cultures. We're to want to know them and to learn from them. That's a position of humility and being a, a lifelong learner. One of the greatest things I've learned in my doctoral studies is that the disease of know-it-allism corrupts and destroys and shrinks your ability to both love other people and impact your community and certainly also receive in love from the Lord. Be a humble, curious learner of other people. Ask them good questions. Get to know them. They have a strength that you don't have. They have an experience you don't have, you might need to learn from. Be thoughtful about that, right? So that's the positive thing we're being called to, not just don't judge. But be aware that sometimes your speed, your silence, your tone, those things speak volumes and how you treat other people and some of the value judgments you make within yourself. This is an issue of the heart. And as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? So realize that about ourselves. But what else does he say? In verse 5 he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? Because that was a common practice in the first century for the wealthy to use the courts to their advantage, their education, their relationships, and leveraging them for their advantage over the poor. He's saying, you're showing this extra love for the person who has more money who walks into your congregation than the poor man, and yet it's mostly a lot of times the ones who have more, who are treating you badly. What's wrong with you? He's being reminded, love all people. Be thoughtful and kind. Do not show superficial distinctions. What is the character of God? Does he not love the poor abundantly who are spiritually, emotionally, physically, right, financially? He loves them. Has God's love for the poor not been made abundantly clear? What nation did God choose? Did he choose Egypt? No. He chose Israel. A tiny nation, nobody cared about, small, insignificant. Who did he choose out of the majestic lineup of people that looked like the rock? Did he choose them or did he choose the smallest of them, right? The runt David, who was not even paraded before Samuel to be chosen as king. He chose the small brother, the small son. He chose a suffering servant, son Jesus Christ, came not in pomp and circumstance, but he came in humility. Do you understand that is the disposition as we as Christ followers ought to have in all levels of our conduct and our personal lives? The Apostle Paul reminds us, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 
Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So therefore, how can you turn your back on anybody you come into contact with, encounter with in your surroundings? And the Lord has shown you mercy and grace and deep care when he has chosen you even though you did not deserve the kind of love and attention and care. But God has displayed his love for you. He's given his love in his son Jesus Christ for you. Not because he knew of the great things you're going to do for him, but he chose you out of his own delight to elevate you, to change you, to redeem you, to call you to himself, to have mercy on you. Has not God's mercy and his grace for you, has that not changed us? The way we think, the way we approach others, the way we talk with others. We are not called towards transactional love in this life, right? But unconditional love of others. To treat other people and remind them they are made in the image of God. And we ought to value others. We ought to help our people and communities value other people as well. Has not God's grace begun to change the way you think, the way you act, the way you speak? Because it ought to. It's the good news of what God's word changes us. But even when we do engage in these sins, I want you to realize they do have a really pretty big effect. Even though you might not think it because you're not maybe committing adultery or not going down and you know, and, and doing some bank robbery and stealing from the bank, or you're not doing something, right, pretty egregious and going out to Newport News and shooting somebody, that you're not guilty and have the full weight of God's wrath on your shoulders. I want you to be reminded the weight of one sin is the weight of them all. Be reminded of that. So verses 8 through 13, they say this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment good news mercy triumphs over judgment but you need to hear if you've shown partiality favoritism in your heart in your speech in your conduct in even one way which I know you have because you're human you're guilty of the full weight of all of God's law you've broken one of his laws you've broken all of them you know how many laws you've broken of God's law you commit one you have the weight of all you have 613 Old Testament laws bearing down on you. You're guilty of one. You're guilty of breaking them all. That's bad news. Be reminded of that for all of us. The good news is God's mercy, because he's lived and abided by all of these laws, grants you free grace, love, and mercy. And that is what covers you. That is what changes you and shapes you and turns you into a learner, a person who's curious, a person who's humble and kind. It's not because of what you, getting what you deserve. You don't get what you deserve. You get grace and mercy instead. And out of that, we're to show that grace and mercy to other people and even how we judge them. That these little sins, they're, they're not so little. Do you understand 
that because we do these and we make these little judgments and these little value thoughts all the time, that we're going to be a people who's repentant. Repentant to the Lord frequently. We're to be a people who are repentant to other people frequently. Because we make those value judgments all the time in little ways and in subtle ways. And we're going to be people who often say and mean, I am sorry. I'm taking a quick side note as a rabbit trail, so I'll get back on in just a moment. But you know, as a campus minister these many years, one of the things that haunts me when I meet with college students is when they tell me their parents never grew up telling them that they were sorry and admitting that they were wrong. That haunts me because that messes with all of my college students who have never heard that. I want my college students to be repentant people because they mess up. Trust me, they do. But when they've never heard it, they've never seen it. It does a lot of damage. Those even small little things like not saying you're sorry regularly have great and big impacts. They really, they really do. We ought to be a people regularly, not just in our families, but in all of our conduct and work and life, who ask for repentance. Hey, you know what? I'm really sorry. Um, I've been really negligent getting back to you because I've been prioritizing all these other people. And maybe you don't have to say and name the people you've been prioritizing, but maybe you need to just apologize to that person. You haven't gotten back to them because you know you valued them at a lower level than all these other people you've been responding to much more quickly or with, with great more gusto or availability. We ought to be a people who are quick to thoughtfully and meaningfully apologize to other people and particularly repent to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive us that we have devalued so many people who are made in your image and who are worthy of honor and respect. Forgive us. We need that regular heart checkup. Now, I realize that, like, with our vehicles, if your timing belt goes out, your AC goes out, right, your transmission blows, it screams, fix me, doesn't it? Your car does, especially in this heat, which is terrible right now. But your car says, fix me. But what about the regular checkup of, right, that little blinking oil light that says, hey, you need to change me every 5,000 miles. What happens if you begin to change your oil every 5,000 miles? And you, when you have that little blinking light and when it pops on, you actually engage it? What do you know? You have a healthier, probably longer-lasting vehicle functioning, going the distance, right? Being a blessing to you and taking you where and functioning the way it needs to be. This sermon is like that little yellow blinking light saying, you need a heart checkup. I need a heart checkup. Because these small, subtle sins fly under the radar all too often. And we need to be reminded, this isn't small. Our personal conduct, how we live, how we think, what motivates us is a big deal. And it actually has a, has a big consequence on our effectiveness our love and our care and our treatment of others. It really does. The impact and the longevity of our impact, right? And the distance of our impact as well. We are to be a people who are thoughtful and who engage in righteousness. That our love of our justification ought to lead towards a growing sanctification to use right theological terms for this. And that superficial favoritism is not okay. Thankfully for us, Jesus never showed partiality to the poor, to the tax collectors, to adulterers, to the Samaritans, to the doubters, those who are socially outcast, those who are demon-possessed, those who are mentally ill, 
those who had come to him from different cultures and backgrounds dressed completely different ways. Thankfully for him, he had mercy on those who came to him and he loved them. The beauty of God's redeeming plan for his peoples that he has chosen us in spite of ourselves and he loves us. He has given his life for us. He has died on the cross for us and that he gives us grace. He draws us into his family as we saw and learned about adoption. He adopts us into his family. We are his, right? Heirs to the throne just the way his son Jesus Christ is. And because we receive mercy and we receive mercy from the throne, we are to be people who distribute mercy, equity, justice, thoughtfulness, care towards other people. As Christians, for us to reject the despised, downcast, overlook certain peoples is a complete contradictory of how we're supposed to live and how God has treated us. It's a contradiction of grace and the grace that we have received. Let Jesus Christ and his mercy, his love for you, begin to change you, to think about it, to live it, so that you might live mercy and grace and kindness and care. The good news for you and for me is that God's mercy triumphs our judgments. Amen? That's good news. It really is good news. But because that's true, we need to go and live that. And as we're going to close here and I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray that the Lord would begin to, to give you a repentant heart. You have probably showed partiality or favoritism to somebody, you probably need to either ask that person for forgiveness or you need to ask for forgiveness before the Lord. And let's do that because we're a people who are guilty of this subtle sin. The good news is, is God loves you and he forgives you. Amen? But let's ask. Let's be changed by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the living and embodying of his word. And let's do it, right? Because that's what James calls us to. Well, let's do that now in prayer. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord Jesus, we need your help. We are a judgy people. Lord, we are a wealthy people. Lord, we are a privileged people. Lord, we thank you for the good gifts that you have given us and displayed for us. Lord, but as we are blessed, help us to be a blessing to others. Lord, as you ritually, Lord, bless us, help us to bless others, to love others, to think of others as valuable, as worthy, as kind and care. Lord, forgive us for the false value judgments, Lord, that we, we often live out of in subtle and sinister ways. Help us to be a people who are more curious, who are more thoughtful, more reflective on our personal lives, our motivations, our conduct. Lord, help us to be a people who desire to learn from others, their strengths, their experiences. Help us to be a humble people, Lord, and not a proud people. Help us, Lord, to ask good, dis- good questions, to learn, to listen, to discover, Lord, what other people value, what they bring to the table to beautify this world, this community. Lord, we need, Lord, others. We need them in this body. We need them in our lives. We have so much to learn. So much, Lord, to to gain from enjoying, Lord, your image working in and through other people. Lord, as we love you, 
Help us, Lord, to love your people and to love, Lord, the image that's being displayed in and through them. Lord, change us, grow us, convict us, Lord, encourage us, and shape us to be a people who love you and love others well. Lord, we need your help. And all God's people said, amen, amen.